Good morning. I'm Alicia. I'll be reading the text this morning for today's message. Uh, so you can follow along on the screens, by the way. It's uh, 1 Corinthians 16, uh, 1 through 24. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries." When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord, as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all in his will to come now. He will come when he has the opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours." Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in the house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Thanks, Alicia. So we continue and actually conclude a series, To What End? And uh, this morning's title is actually uh, Contributions. Contributions. And as we conclude this series this week, we'll also be wrapping up uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, if you can believe that. And so if you've been with us uh, since our launch, which today is nine months ago. So nine months ago today, we launched uh, Centerway. And so we're still a very young church on many levels. Um, Sometimes we still have hiccups and issues. (laughs) It's just a rumor that never happens to us. Um, But uh, yeah, nine months ago, we started First Corinthians, and uh, we've had five different series. We took a break around Christmas time for a sixth series that um, had to do with Advent, but for the most part, we have uh, traveled through the book of First Corinthians, and so it's pretty exciting to see um, this be wrapped up. 
So next week we'll start a new series and we'll dig into uh, Isaiah for the summer. And so we're really excited about a series in Isaiah uh, starting off in the summer. Uh, we won't be going through the whole book. So be like, oh my gosh, the next 10 years is going to be on Isaiah? That's amazing. <laughs> for those of you that are not uh, super biblically literate, you're like, I don't understand. Is Isaiah a bad thing? <laughs> it's just a really long book. Um, but we're going we're gonna to work through part of it. Um, actually, only the, the first chapter here. Um, on the front end. So in either, ca- in either case, as we conclude things today, uh, you might hear me reference Paul or the Apostle Paul. The reason I do that is if this is your first week with us, uh, the Apostle Paul is the author of 1 Corinthians, and so he helped establish the church in Corinth. And so if I make reference to Paul, that's who I'm talking about, so that you're kind of in the loop there, uh, if you're not aware. Um, I'm not sure that uh, you know this about me, and if you're here for the first time, you'd have no reason to, but I have three children, and uh, my youngest is a boy, and he plays uh, Little League baseball, and um, actually this year he plays on a, a team that's sponsored by Centerway Church, which is pretty cool that uh, we've had the opportunity to, to sponsor some teams as a way of serving the community. Um, but I, I assistant coach with the team, and uh, it is amazing because my son is seven, and so uh, they're either really locked in or they're really not playing baseball at all, <laughs> and uh, everywhere in between. And um, one of the things that we do, it's a coach pitch, and if the the kids can't hit after a certain number of pitches. Then we bring out a tee and they hit it off the tee. And so as a result, we have a whole mess of game balls up by the pitcher's mound, which is really a flat spot in the field. I'm not even sure the number that we put out every game, uh, but it's a lot. And uh, last, uh, I think it was like maybe two or three games ago, I'm not sure which, uh, there was one of the kids went out on the field and he's grabbing the balls and he's putting them in his hands and he's starting to grab all of them and he's sort of stacking them up before the game like, uh, hey bud, just just leave them right there. Just leave them right there. And he's like, I got him, I got him. And he's piling them all up like, but what are you, what are you doing? Like we don't have to, to get the balls actually, they're where they're supposed to be. And he's like, I just, I want to play. I want to play baseball. And so I need the balls. And I was like, okay, well, you only need one actually. Uh, if you really want to go silly, let's go with two, but I don't know what you're going to do with 12. <laughs> and so he's like, no, I got, I got him. I got him. And he's putting them out. And I'm like, no, but you don't have to, okay, go ahead and get them. You know, cause they're kind of at that age where uh, you're trying to communicate things to them. And then you're just like, okay, get on the base, get on the base, get, all right, well, you're out, you're out. So yeah, just go to the bench now. <laughs> Good try. Next time, <laughs> leave the helmet on. <laughs> Stop eating bugs, you know, all those things. Um, and, and so in either case, he's trying to hold all of these balls and they're just falling all over the place. And I think it's a snapshot of kind of the human condition where we just, we want to gather things. And we've talked about that a lot through the book of 1 Corinthians, just different moments where Paul addresses this reality of the fact that we want to we gather. And so he's dropping these baseballs everywhere. There's no way he can actually hold them. And yet he's intent on trying to gather them and getting frustrated that others are trying to take the balls away. We don't grow out of that for whatever reason. I mean, maybe we don't grab baseballs. Maybe you do. I don't know. You're like, I've got them all. Um, but whatever it is, we we still gather. We still want more. I actually stopped for lunch yesterday. I was traveling somewhere. I had the opportunity to, um, to do a wedding. And on my way back home, I stopped for a meal real quick. And as I stopped uh, for a meal, I thought it was a place you could eat. And it was actually like an ice cream type store. And uh, so it was a fail. But when I went in, um, there's a guy standing there. And I said, is this, is this a restaurant? And they said, oh, kind of. It can be. But we sell ice cream right here. I was like, okay. And uh, guy at front goes, so what's the largest milkshake you can make? 
And she's like, well, the largest one is, and she says this ounce number or whatever, and it's like basically this disturbing bucket that they fill with ice cream, and they're like, oh, you'd like chocolate death? Go right ahead, you know? You'd like to die right now in front of us? And so um, he's like, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll have the largest one, just, to, I mean, as big as it can get. And his wife, I assume, looks at him and goes, why do you want such a large one? And he's like, why not? And she's like, uh, because you probably shouldn't eat that much ice cream in a single sitting. And he's like, why wouldn't I get the largest one I can? Isn't that like a picture of America, right? This problem of like supersize it, right? <laughs> like, just make it bigger. Why? Because I can. They're like, thanks for coming. Here's a two liter of soda. Um, but th- it's this rhythm of life that just continues with, I want the largest I can, and I want to gather as much as I can. And he looked at him, and, and um, he looked at his wife, and he just started to justify it. Like, well, it's Saturday. <laughs> what? Like, what does that mean? Like, well, because Saturday is the day that we consume as much as we can, evidently. And she's like, Saturday? Like, it doesn't mean you just eat all the ice cream you can. He goes, well, but it's Father's Day weekend. You know, like, he's just throwing out everything, you know? Like, I'm a guy. It's the June. It's summertime, you know? You're blonde. I'm old. Like, just let me eat my ice cream. Like, why? Because we want to justify. We just want to justify the fact that we want to gather. We want more Because we can. And so the question I want us to consider as we enter into the message today on the front end is why do we gather? Why do we gather? I don't mean why do we physically gather in a location. I mean, why do we gather stuff? But it's not necessarily only stuff. We gather more than that. I mean, it's pretty easy at face value that we can say we have a tendency to gather stuff. But it goes beyond that. We gather friends. We gather finances. We gather things of all different shapes and sizes. Why is it that we gather? I want to submit to you that we gather in order to stabilize our comfort and in order to find fulfillment. If you think about it, whether you like it or not, we put these things together. There's this thing called comfort eating. We're probably all guilty of it, so if that resonates with you, don't feel bad. But there's, there's this thing where, where we want to gather stuff in order to pursue a level of comfort or fulfillment. Whether it's friends or finances, food or otherwise. We all do this as humans because it's part of the fallen condition. It's just part of humanity. And so I ask, to what end? To what end do we gather all of this stuff? At the end of the day, Why? Here's what I find interesting. Our gathering is cyclical. And what I mean by that is that we gather, we gather stuff, we gather food, we gather whatever, but it doesn't bring us joy or fulfillment ultimately. So then we purge it. Not all of us purge it in the sense that we don't purge it right away. Uh, By and large, eventually we will all purge what it is that we gather, whether it's stuff or finances, in the pursuit of fulfillment, even hoarders purge. Like you might be sitting there and be like, no, no, there's some people that gather, and all they do is gather, 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 gather. I've been in their homes. <laughs> That's my home. You know, like, I don't know where you're at. But you might say, no, we get, well, the reality is, even when you're gathering in one area of your life, you still purge in another area. People that gather stuff and have that 
condition of hoarding, and I know that there's a, a mental issue at, at part, and so I'm not making light of that reality or that condition, but the fact is, as, as they deal with the need to gather stuff, they do it at the expense of relationships. They purge in other areas. And so we gather in order to find fulfillment or joy. We say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to comfort eat, or I'm going to search as many friends as I can, or I'm going to gather as much finances. I'm going to try to find a sense of worth and a sense of belonging. And in the midst of all of the gathering, eventually we purge. We purge this stuff. We have a yard sale, right? We say, what do I need all this stuff for? Only to gather again. Some of us try to even be disciplined. We say, well, I don't buy something new unless I get rid of something else. So basically, I'm gathering and purging all at once. But I'm still gathering and I'm still purging. We, we purge our finances on stuff sometimes. We say, you know what? I've saved enough, so I'm going to get these things. I'm going to gather this stuff. We purge our finances in experiences. And our society is an increasing level of doing that. You know, we think experiences are memories and that's far more meaningful. And so we purge things in order to gather other things. It's an exchange. And yes, eventually, we even purge relationships. We just realize that, you know, that friend isn't quite good enough or isn't giving us what it is that we really want out of that friendship. And so we let that friendship go and we try to find or gather another friend. We gather and purge. It's kind of disturbing if you think about it. If you think about it in those terms, it gets disturbing and yet at the same time on some level it makes a lot of sense. If you're gathering in pursuit of comfort for stability, or for sense of meaning, it stands to reason why you'd eventually purge those things because ultimately they don't bring you the thing you're desiring. So at the end, when you have all of the stuff or when you have all of the finances or when you have all of the friends, you kind of take account. You look back at your situation, at your current reality, and you say, is this really giving me everything I want out of it? And so it makes sense that on some level we purge. We're trying to fill a gap of meaning or purpose in our lives that only God can fill. Only God can fill that void. And so as we search and we gather and we try to fill in the cracks in our life, it ultimately falls short. And so then we let it go in search of something else. Maybe you're agreeing with the statement that we're trying to find stuff to fill a gap that only God can fill. But there's a problem with even agreeing with that statement is how do you break that cycle? How do you break the cycle of gathering and purging? There's kind of an easy answer, which I heard a majority of my life as I was growing up. You just, you become a Christian. If you just become a Christian, then you don't have to deal with that, right? Because then God just fills all those gaps. And suddenly you don't have to search for fulfillment in any other area. I'm saying it with a smirk on my face because the problem with it is even Christians are still human. And the human condition is to gather and purge. And so we don't somehow separate ourselves from humanity and all of a sudden become apart from it and say, hey, now that I'm a Christian, I just run through fields of flowers. And everything's good now. Now I say, will you be my friend? And they're like, yes, I will. And I will fully support you in all of the healthy decisions you have to make. And I'll say, whoa. Too far in the areas you've gone too far on. I will support you in every area. Why? Because you are a Christian and I am your friend. 
That doesn't happen. If you have that friend, impressive. They're probably lying. But in either case, there is no like, ah, like moment of glory where all of a sudden everything becomes perfect. Where all of a sudden you surrender your life to Christ and you walk over to the kitchen drawer, pull it open, and $100 bills fly out. And you're like, ah, the provision of the Lord is new every morning. (laughs) Again, impressive, but not likely. As humans, we still gather and we still purge. And so the the, the tension that we have is that when we give these placated answers, the, these simple responses, this Christian jargon of what you need is the Lord. You're like, really? I just need God and then I won't feel alone? I won't feel the need to gather? I won't feel the need to purge? And the problem is when they do or when we do, we come to this place where we feel like maybe we're a bad Christian or somehow God let us down. Do we have to maybe purge this church because it didn't fulfill everything that we need? And so we go and gather from another. The rhythm and the cycle of life, we want to simplify it. Just say, you know what? I'm going to stop gathering. You know, Pastor Claude, I'm, I'm glad we're preaching about this because I'm now a minimalist. I've sold everything and we're going to live in a tiny house. Have you seen that show? It's amazing. It's super tempting, especially when you see like them telling their kids, okay, you get this bucket, put everything you want in this bucket. And you're like, I don't know how my kids would respond to that, but I think I'm willing to give it a shot. (laughs) There's this amazing idea of these minimalists that just purge everything. The problem is that's all they're doing. They're purging. They're still part of the cycle. They're gathering in other areas. Now, I'm not going to tell them, hey, listen, your tiny house is only going to last so long till you have that first kid, you know, because <laughs> some of these couples move in there and they're like, we just love it. It's awesome. We're ready to start our family. <laughs> like, that's 200 square feet, son. Where are you going to put the kid? Like, oh, that'll be the baby's loft over there. Like, sleep well, my friends. Sleep well, you know. So maybe they'll go back into the purge and into the gathering. I, I don't really know, and I don't pretend to know their situation. And if you're getting ready to sell everything to buy a tiny house, go for it. I'm not trying to rain on your parade. I'm simply saying that you're searching after a yearning within yourself to realize the stuff of this life doesn't bring you joy. And so society as a whole is saying, hey, the big house, all the stuff, it just it doesn't pan out. And so you know what? We're going to live smaller so that we can gather more finances. So we're going to gather here and purge there. In fact, my tiny house has wheels on it, so we can actually travel and have experiences as well. Some of these guys are like, wow, you really think you thought of everything, right? So we're going to, we're going to purge the comfort of stability in a school district for the purpose of being able to gather experiences or finances or freedom. You see, it's a cycle. It looks different. No matter what category of life you're in, but the the fact remains, there's this need to gather and purge. This is uh, some of what Paul is addressing. And in fact, he's addressing it in multiple ways as he concludes 1 Corinthians here. In verse 2, he says, On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. So Paul is is coming to the church in Corinth, and and what he's saying is, we want to be able to take funds in the church of Corinth and help other churches in the area and in surrounding areas of the world at the time. 
And so what he's telling them is, is to get into the rhythm of giving. And he says the first of every week, the first day of every week, this is the first example that we really have that the early church actually did gather on Sundays. And so they gather on Sundays. And what he's saying is store up the finances so that when I come, I can take those funds and help other churches abroad. There's something interesting that happens. Verse one is in a specific tense in the Greek. And in verse two, the tense actually change. It changes to what's called a present imperative tense, which means this. It means that it's a command, it's present and ongoing. And so what he's saying is start setting aside your funds from this point on. It's an ongoing process. It's an ongoing command to say, listen, let's gather our funds so that we can extend the mission of God beyond just the walls of your church. Paul is saying that they and we should be contributors, not simply gatherers. Part of the way you start to break the cycle is that you begin to be contributors instead of gatherers. Now, here's the deal. That's it's not a new concept, right? In fact, it's a concept that exists even in the business world. Um, if you want to go the long haul as an organization, as a company, you give back. You need to give back is what they say. And so in some circles, as individuals, we even call it philanthropy, where we like, we give. And some could even say that, this, that the idea of being a contributor is just another form of purging. The principle is this. We give back because it makes us feel better about ourselves. It's a form of purging if we're not careful. So the reality is that we can even part with our stuff and our finances with the wrong motive. It's two sides of the same ugly coin. There's one person who will say, you know what, I'm gonna gather I'm going to white knuckle with my money. I worked hard for this money. I can't believe it. I came to church today. This dude's talking about money. I knew it. The church is the same. All they want is my money. Money, money, money. <laughs> and so there, there's this group of people that will white knuckle, hold onto their finances and say, I will not be a contributor. I will not. But then on the other side of the same coin are those that make themselves feel better by saying, well, I give. In fact, I'm so holy I give often. Project Rescue, the church is giving to that, but I will give above and beyond. And we celebrate that, unless it's about how you are making yourself feel. You see, because those that are giving for the purpose of making themselves feel better or for more holy or feel more holy or anything like that, they're just on the other side of the same coin of someone that says, I will not be generous. So here's the truth. I'm not asking for your money. Center Way is not asking for your money. In fact, God doesn't need our money. God doesn't need our money because the church will continue to move forward because it's his church. So if all of us sit here and fold our arms and say, I can't believe it, I'm not giving another penny, there will be others that come after us that will say, I'll give to the furtherance of the kingdom. I'll dig deep. I'll be generous. So the kingdom of God will advance. Why? Because it's his church. And he says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so provision will come for the purpose of the mission, either with your help or without it. So the question is this. Do you want to be a part of his mission? Do you want to partner with co-labors and do something greater? You see, 
Paul doesn't just end with this conversation about finances. But the text is clearly talking about that, so I would be remiss to not talk about it. He goes on from financial giving to actually his missional travel plans. And I don't think it's an accident. I I know the two are connected. In verses 13 and 14, he says this, Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Now, some of you might be like, what? Doesn't that mean like act like a strong person? Does he mean man? Why is Paul so sexist? He's not sexist, by the way. You can read the other podcasts. He's actually a huge proponent of female leadership and females um, furthering the kingdom. In either case, what this actually means in current language is what we would say, man up. So I would look at my daughter and even be like, come on, man up, buttercup. You got this, you know? So it's that kind of a language that he's saying. Like, listen, be a man, be men, be strong, be courageous. You can do this. And he goes on in verse 14. He says, let all that you do be done in love. So he's talking about motives here. There's, there's two things that we're learning from what Paul is talking about. First, motives matter. That all of this matters in the context of motive, that we can give arbitrarily, that we can uh, give out of rote obligation, and that ultimately you're only being religious at best. But if your motives are pure. So first off, motives matter, but secondly, intentionality matters. We learn from Paul here that intentionality matters. Paul goes through a list of where he's headed and those that are involved in a very strategic and intentional way. And I think we have something to learn from the way that he approaches this entire text. Paul goes from being a a fiscal contributor with correct motives to being one who contributes their whole life with intention. Whole life. He goes through a litany of people that have done incredible things to literally lay down their lives for the furtherance of the kingdom. Motive matters and intentionality matters. So, Something I want to ask you, how intentional and strategic are you? Now, you might be flooded with some thoughts real quick. Like, I'm super intentional. I'm sure that we have some anal retentive people in the room that are very like OCD, like, no, no, trust me, I am intentional. (laughs) And your spouse is like, mercy, please. (laughs) You just follow them around messing things up as they organize stuff. (laughs) So we can be intentional and strategic about things, about who it is that you're going to marry, how old you'll be when you get married, what the plan is as far as what college you'll go to, what it is that you'll major in, how you'll get your first job, what all that looks like. You maybe even have a strategic plan on how you're going to uh, hit retirement at a specific age, what you will do, how you're going to have 1.2 kids and 3.1 dogs or whatever in the world the statistics are. Like you have it all figured out. You're super strategic, very intentional. How intentional and strategic are you spiritually? How about your spiritual life? It's amazing how we can be intentional about the things we want to gather. I mean, we can lay out a plan of what our whole vacation is going to look like. Here, I got it all mapped out, kids. Listen, this is the way it's going to look. We're going to do that, then this, then this. And the kids are like, ah, it's not good enough. (laughs) Go to your room. No, just kidding. 
But we're very strategic about our vacations. We're super intentional about certain things when it comes to to our vacations or when it comes to how it is we're going to leave our job or start our next one or leave this school and go to that college or whatever the situation of your life might be. We tend to be very intentional about the temporal. Here's the tragic thing. We're super intentional and strategic about the stuff that literally doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. Like at the end of the day, and what Paul is saying, literally the chapter before this, is that we need to live our lives in light of eternity. And that's why we're saying, to what end? So you're so strategic, but to what end? How strategic and intentional are you about your spirituality? How planned and formulated and and God-risked are you in regards to to what it is that that maybe the Lord might be revealing to you? And, And I realize we have a room full of different people at different seasons of their spiritual walk. I realize it. Some of you might be completely opposed to even the concept that a God exists, all the way up to committed Christ follower and everywhere in between. And so I realize that I'm talking in language about intention and strategic that that maybe you're like, I'm not so sure. And so I ask you this, for those that are in this room that are maybe skeptics or not even sure that there is a God, I want to challenge you to consider what are the implications in your life if God is real? If God's real. If there is, in fact, a God. What are the implications in your life? What does that mean? How does that change things? I'm not here to to get into a one-sided argument where you have to sit silently while I present an eloquent argument that you might completely disagree with. Instead, I'm going to simply say, have you considered the possibility of what the implications will be on your one and only life if, in fact, there is a God? I think when it comes to eternity, it's probably worth your time to investigate. Ask the questions. It's okay to doubt. It's all right to search. It's okay to question. But have you been intentional about it? You know, we spend too much time reacting to what others have planned rather than being proactive about our lives and mission. I want to say that one more time because it's the crux of almost all of the issues that we deal with in this life. The things that you complain about, the things that you're frustrated about, the things that you're annoyed about, always, 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 always at the core involve someone else imposing their will or changing your reality. We spend too much time reacting to what others have planned rather than being proactive about our lives and mission. What would it look like for you to live life on purpose? Live life on purpose. And, and maybe, listen, maybe you're super on purpose when it comes to your marriage or your vacation or your retirement or your jobs or all the things that have to do with maybe 120 years of your life. But in light of the long hugeness of eternity, how intentional have you been considering the implications of the decisions you make with your one and only life? Are you living your life as a reaction to others? Or are you living sent by God? such a profound difference. It's a profound difference in the way you approach every situation. 
It's a profound difference in the way that you interact with everything temporal, from relationship to finances to the stuff that you have. And it doesn't mean that you can't have fun. It doesn't mean that you can't leverage finances to the furtherance of the kingdom and a vacation. It doesn't mean that those things are bad. I'm not here to say, listen, so if you're going to have fun this summer, oh, God is really angry. I can't believe you're going on vacation. You know, Jesus died for you. Oh my gosh, here's the hope that someone just cuts that audio out and puts it all over social media. <laughs> I'm not going to give Dan any ideas. <laughs> you got to love being taken out of context, right? But here's the deal. We can enjoy this life while leveraging it for the furtherance of something greater than ourselves. It doesn't have to be either or. That's a sucker's choice. It can be both and. It can be both and. You can enjoy the life that God gave you while leveraging it to the fullness of something greater than yourselves. Verse 19 says this. Paul says, as he's kind of greeting and wrapping things up, he says, the churches of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Prisca, who's also Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you, a hearty, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. It's kind of... Uh, it's kind of more profound than it appears at face value that he would include them. Because there's a, commentators reveal that there's extensive archaeological evidence from many different cities showing that homes were actually modified, like construction-wise modified, in order to hold churches. You see, the early church was not the church. You know, the church functioned in tabernacles, and dealt with Pharisees and Sadducees and a totally different environment and expectation. And so the early church actually functioned out of homes. And the homes oftentimes could only house so many people. And so historically, you can go to dig sites where it shows that homes were modified in order to hold early churches. The reason why that's, uh, that's kind of significant is because Priscilla and Aquila, Aquila and Priscilla were wealthy business people. They were wealthy business people that did exactly that. They gave of their treasure and they moved from their home. In fact, according to scripture, they're referenced in a lot of Paul's writings, but they moved from their home in Rome. There's evidence that they potentially gave their life to the Lord in Rome and they were part of the Roman church. And uh, they moved from Rome to Corinth to help establish the church in Corinth. These Wealthy business people that are not apostles, that are not disciples, that are, they're, they're not referenced, they're disciples, obviously, in the fact that they followed the Lord and had significant impact, but they're not according to the, the office that we see or that we reference. Wealthy business people that say, you know, we're going to help establish this church in Corinth because God's done something in our life. And so the reason why he references them here is because he's talking about them in Asia. So what's amazing about Aquila and Priscilla is they actually, once the church in Corinth was established, they went to Ephesus before Paul and helped establish the church in Ephesus. And so he's telling the people in Corinth, hey, you know those people that helped you be established? Yeah, they're, they're in Ephesus. They say hi. They're furthering the kingdom of God still. And he's encouraging them because he's showing them, listen, it's not simply that our finances, we should be contributor, but what does it look like to contribute with our lives? And to be super encouraging, there's 
a lot about Priscilla and Quilla that are impressive. Honestly, they're a husband and wife team. They gave of their time. They gave of their talent. They lived their lives on purpose. In fact, in Romans 16, verse 4, uh, Paul actually references that, that they actually risked their necks for him. And, and so they've, they've gone out on a limb for him in specific areas. They've given of their time and their talent. In fact, we even know that Priscilla, a female, a very highly educated female, helped train and educate Apollos. And Apollos is, is this person that the church in Corinth is elevating as an eloquent communicator. And so there's all these converges of these stories of these people, ordinary, everyday people that just said, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to live my life on purpose. So it would be so easy to say, you need to be like them. (laughs) The takeaway today is be like Priscilla and Aquila. Be like Paul. Try harder. Earn it. It could be the temptation this morning, but I think it's falling short. Because what you really need to know and what we all need to learn is what's underneath them. What is it that that clicked, that all of a sudden they went from a gatherer purger to someone that's a contributor, living their life on purpose. How did they break the cycle? Because if you're just going to try to be like them, you're reacting to what others have done. How did they do it? Weren't they human? I think sometimes when we read scripture, we're like, yeah, this is amazing. I mean, those people were incredible. I'm not them. (laughs) So I don't have to do any of that, right? Happens all too often. They were incredibly human and normal, broken people. So how did they break the cycle? The answer is this. Their hearts and minds were snapped out of the cycle by the truth of the gospel. They realized that God gave them everything, which means we aren't owners. You see, These people had, Paul had a literal Damascus Road experience where where Jesus revealed himself and said, why are you persecuting my church? Aquila and Priscilla have a, a moment where as a result of Paul's obedience to do that which God called him to do, there's a church in Rome and they lay their lives down. They say, you know what? I'm going to live my life on purpose. They're average people that have just said, God's done something in my life. They realized that no matter how much they gathered, no matter how much stuff they gained, no, no matter how religious they were, Paul on the religious side of the coin, Priscilla and Aquila on the business side of the coin, both saying, listen, at the end of the day, we're gathering and purging, we're gathering and purging, and it's empty. And so in the moment where they realized that Jesus lived the life they couldn't and died the death that they deserve, That it's in that moment of the awareness of God's generosity that it snaps the cycle in their hearts and minds. You see, when they realize that God gave them everything, it means they aren't owners. They're stewards. And that changes everything. You see, if you're an owner, hold it. Hold it as tight as you can. Get white-knuckled. Declare that it's yours. In fact, try to hold more baseballs, as many as you can, and say, they're mine, 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 mine. You'll look like a fool, and eventually all the balls will fall on the ground, and you'll realize, I can't gather enough. But if you're a steward, then none of it is yours. 
And you have the responsibility to do with it what it is that the owner wills. That's how you break the cycle. You break the cycle by realizing you're not an owner. You're a steward. And so you say things like this. If it's God's money, (laughs) if it's God's time, you see, because we learned in 1 Corinthians that it's, it's God's money, it's God's time. He talks about the resurrection in light of, of, of life and everything in 1 Corinthians. He says, listen, time is mine. Your life is not your own. And so if your money is not your own and time is not your own, and we also learn in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 that your talents and gifts are not your own, that they're God's and that he actually empowers you to use them. So if your time and your finances and your talent isn't your own, then you have to say, God, what do you want me to do with it? And that's how the cycle breaks. You see, because if it's your time and your talent and your treasure, then you have a right to hold on to it. But if it's the Lord's, if that's been awoken in your heart, then you have to say things like, God, this is your, this is your money. This is your time. And all my talents and my gifts, they're yours. And so what is it that you are calling me to do? That's when you start to live on purpose. That's when it snaps. I want to tell you here at Centerway, we have what's called because and therefores. We have one around generosity. Meredith made reference to it earlier. It goes like this. Because God gave us everything, we value generosity. Therefore, we are open-handed and happily go above and beyond with our time, our talent, and our treasure. We steward our spiritual gifts and serve. We are contributors, not consumers. Are you living sent? Are you a contributor? Not because we want to somehow assimilate you into this environment or this culture, but because the truth of the gospel has awoken in your heart and your mind. And all of a sudden, the white-knuckled tightness has started to open up. Are you living sent? What does this morning's text require of you? As Paul wraps up and concludes 1 Corinthians and he talks about this idea of how we deal with our finances and our lives as a whole. What does that mean for you? We say every week that the text requires something from us. We never get to a place in our spiritual journey where we go, oh, I get it. There's nothing that the verses have to offer me. No, there's something new. God is awakening within our hearts and minds every time we open his word. And so what is it this morning that the Lord's speaking to you? Here's a question that we want you to to leave with in your heart and mind that maybe you can discuss or pray about or consider. In what ways is God asking me to be generous? What ways? What does it look like for you? I don't pretend to be the Holy Spirit. I'm not here saying that that everybody fits in this lane or that everyone has to do that. Maybe for you this morning, generosity looks like a willingness to say, okay, God, if you're real, I'll lay my life down before you. Maybe for you, the application is to surrender your life, to ask Jesus to be the Lord and leader of your life this morning. Maybe that's your application. If that's you, it's as simple as praying a prayer in the quietness of your seat. To simply say, Lord, I'm a sinner, but I know you died for me. 
Would you forgive me my sins? Come and be the Lord and leader of my life. That's that simple. For others of you this morning, maybe it's considering what it looks like to be generous with your time. To be generous with your talent, with that which God has given you, whether it's your life, your time, your one and only life, to leverage towards the furtherance of his kingdom, or maybe it's the skill set that you have. And I know that's a journey. We're saying, wait a second, do I have anything to offer? Or how do I offer what it is I have? We welcome those conversations. Maybe for you this morning, it is your treasure. Maybe it is an opportunity to say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go from someone that gives from time to time to someone that's going to trust the Lord with, with a tithe, and I'm going to give back what it is that, that he's given so richly and generously to me. Maybe it's contributing to Project Rescue and just saying, like, even though Centerway is giving, I do want to give a little bit extra this morning. I, I don't know what it is, but this isn't a, a twisting arm like, ah, oh, gotcha, you need to give your money type thing. It's about what is it that God's asking of you? What's the application? What does it look like for you to be generous? And maybe this morning you're saying, listen, I've surrendered my life to Christ and I give of my time, talent, and treasure. I'm, I'm there. So maybe being generous looks like being generous with your time in the context of having a spiritual conversation with someone that really bothers you. Maybe it looks like living on mission. Say, okay, God, if you have time, then interrupt my day for divine appointments. I need to, I'll just be totally transparent. I need to be way better at that. (laughs) Because it seems like when God interrupts my day, I'm like, seriously? (laughs) Seriously, God, don't you know I have to get to the bank right now? I have to drive to the grocery store? Okay, maybe my wife goes to the grocery store. She's like, she's like, seriously, Claude, I'm calling liar on that one. No, she was very nicely quiet. But the fact is, the busyness of your life, it's like, does God have permission to interrupt your day? Does he have permission to, to interrupt the routine that you have? Maybe it's a God risk. I don't know what it is, but I know God requires something from us. So I want to encourage you to consider that as we go into a time for response. We're going to go into a time of, of worship right now. I just ask that you bow your heads. If you want, you can close your eyes so you're not distracted. The, the worship team will come forward, and as they do, I just want you to consider what it looks like to be generous. What is it that God's asking of you? As we go into to song, it's perfectly fine if you want to remain seated and allow God to continue to, to maybe speak to your heart or mind or whatever that might look like. But we want to respond to what it is that the Lord's speaking to us. I'm just going to pray a prayer and we'll go into a time of response and worship to him. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you this morning and we pray that you would help us reorder the hearts, our hearts and minds, Lord, that we would realize the generosity that you have displayed towards us, the grace, the forgiveness, the patience, the long-suffering, Lord, the way that you deal with us. God, would you just help us to be generous in the way that we live our lives? not because of our efforts, but because of a true transformation in our hearts and minds that we would realize 
because of what God has done. Because of what you have done, God, we're compelled to do likewise, to live on purpose, to live with intention, being sent for the furtherance of your kingdom, for your glory.